Uh, good evening. Good to see you this evening. We'll be in Exodus chapter 3 tonight. Exodus chapter 3. I want to say thank you to Brother Eric and for letting me do this on Sunday nights. Thank you to you for showing up. Uh, you know, I, I told Brother Eric after I stepped away from the Wednesday night youth class and I said, I don't feel like I'm doing anything anymore, you know? I feel like the church needs to get more bang for their buck, so to speak. And I don't know if you consider this that or not, but, uh, but I uh, appreciate the opportunity. And uh, we'll be in Exodus chapter 3. I was reminded last week or so, I heard a story uh, from one of the radio preachers that I listen to frequently, a story I'd heard before. And I thought, you know, that, that's appropriate. It kind of ties in to our lesson for tonight, get us back on track on discussing the names of God. There was a Sunday school teacher, the story says, and uh, she was just teaching her heart out, a little kid Sunday school class, you know, and she looks over, and you've, there's always that, that one kid, maybe there's more than one, I don't know, uh, because I've taught a children's Sunday school class a long time ago, but it's been a while, and, but this little child just wasn't paying attention, you know? It turned the color sheet over, the lesson sheet over, and was doodling on the back. And the teacher said, well, Johnny, you know, you need to pay attention. Just what are you doing? And the little boy beamed with pride said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, you can't do that. He said, because nobody knows what God looks like. And the little boy said, they're about to. <laughs> and, you know, in a way, that's what our sermon series is about. You know, God doesn't allow us to see him physically, to know what he looks like physically, but he reveals to us through his word and through his name in his word, he reveals to us enough about his character that we get a really good picture of who God is. And the, the better this picture is in focus, I think the more we'll worship him, and the more we'll want to live the way he wants us to live. Two weeks ago on Sunday night, we saw that he is Elohim, the strong creator God. And tonight, we look at another name we alluded to two weeks ago on Sunday morning. And that word, that name, is Yahweh in the Hebrew. That, that name in, our, uh, in the Latinized English version, you may have heard it, Jehovah. Same name, Yahweh or Jehovah, it's God's most personal name to the people of Israel, to the Hebrew people. And I, I remember, I told you, if you remember two weeks ago, I told you, you see this in your Bible, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament with a capital L and then the small cap, O-R-D, small capital letters, O-R-D. You see that all throughout. We see it as early as Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. We see it where it talks about the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim. We see that as early as Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. We see it all throughout the book of Genesis. But it's not till we get to Exodus chapter 3 that we see God using it for the first time. It's used by Abraham, it's used by Isaac, it's used by Jacob all throughout the book of Genesis. In Exodus 3, we see God using it himself. And we see through this story in Genesis chapter 3, we'll read several verses, we'll focus in primarily on two verses. But we see so much in Genesis chapter 3 about who Yahweh is, who Jehovah is, that we can't even get to it all tonight. 
But the, the background, if I, if I can count on anybody to know the background, it's the Sunday night crowd. But there may be somebody watching it on the live stream or seeing this some other time that doesn't know all the background. But, you know, the only other group I can think of who might know this better is the Wednesday night crowd. But just in case somebody doesn't know the background, you know that, of course, Moses was born. He's a Hebrew, born during the time the Hebrew people are in Egyptian captivity. Pharaoh says you got to kill all the male babies. Moses' mama couldn't do that, so what she do puts him in the basket in the river. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised by his Hebrew mother. Isn't that something? She got paid to raise her own kid. And uh, some of y'all are saying, how, you know, could I figure that out, you know? And, uh, but anyway, so she's getting paid by Pharaoh's daughter to raise her own kid. Then he's raised in the courts of Pharaoh. And then it kind of turns sideways for Moses. Because one day he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And Moses kills the Egyptian. He gets caught. He gets found out. Pharaoh wants his head. Pharaoh puts a bounty on his head, so Moses runs. Moses ends up in Midian, where he marries. It works out good for him. He marries. He's there for 40 years working for his father-in-law. I guess that was okay. I don't know how many guys just really want to work for their father-in-law, but that's what he ends up doing. And it's there, while he's at work, that we come into this story. Forty years Moses has been there working for his father-in-law. In Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from, the land, uh, from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he said, I will certainly be with you, 
And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your name and for what it means. And Father, I pray that as we look at this scripture tonight that you'd teach us something new about yourself. I pray that you'd remind us of something about yourself that maybe we've forgotten. And I pray that we would leave here tonight trusting you more and looking to you more each and every day as we go throughout our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a familiar story in the Old Testament. There's a lot of sermons in the 15 verses that we just read. Any number of places we could have stopped and we could have preached a sermon, maybe on uh, each and every individual verse that we went through there. I'd love to preach them all, but I don't have that kind of time. We're going to focus on two verses primarily, the last two verses we read, verses 14 and 15. You saw what was happening. Moses is out there just minding his own business. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. He's just out there at work. He's doing what he's been doing day in, day out. No doubt he's probably gotten a little bored from time to time. He may have daydreamed. I don't know. We don't have that information. But Moses is going about his daily job. And right there, God himself, embodied as the angel of the Lord, appeared in a burning bush with a message for Moses. Can you imagine what Moses was thinking as he got the message? Because what's Moses doing? You say, well, he's at work. But we get to the core of it. What is Moses doing? What has he been doing for 40 years? He's been a fugitive. He's been on the run from who? The Egyptians. What's the message from God? Go to Egypt. Don't just go to Egypt. You go deliver a message to the main man. You go deliver a message to the king, to Pharaoh. He says in verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh. Can you imagine the thoughts that are going through Moses' head? And that's what all sets it up to bring us to these main verses we're looking at. When Moses said to God, in, in verse 11, Moses asked the question. God's response down here is what we're going to be looking at. But Moses said, who do I tell him sent me? What, you know, I just kind of think, put this in maybe what I would say to somebody. I don't know that I'd say this to God, but I might say this to somebody else. It's like, who do I tell him died and made me boss? Why should they listen to me? Who do I tell them sent me? What's your name? 
And you, you know the response. God said, I am who I am. And from here, we can learn a lot about this God who calls himself, I am. Long story short, this word Yahweh, or our more modern English translation, Jehovah, these are guesses. Nobody knows how to pronounce this name. Because in the Hebrew, they abbreviated it with four letters. And as the scribes would, would, trans, would, would transcribe, and they, they'd make copies of the scripture, when they would get to this, they would write the four letters, but they would say Adonai, another name of God that we'll look at next week. Because to say this name, they were afraid that just saying it, they might mispronounce it, and they were afraid that would in turn take God's name in vain. So they wouldn't even pronounce it. And over time, it's been completely lost as to how God actually pronounced the name to Moses. But we represent it with the word Yahweh or the name Jehovah. God says here, I am who I am. What can we learn about this name as we look into verses 14 and verses 15? The first thing I want you to know as we get to our first point, Jehovah, the most personal name of God to the children of Israel, to the Hebrew people, Jehovah is a God we can know personally. Did you see that? Read verse 14. I hope it pops out to you in verse 14. God says to tell them, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you to me. And you say, Brother Jeremy, how in the world do you get from that that he's a personal God? Okay, let me give you an illustration. When I, when I worked at SAU, when I was assistant to the president at SAU, from time to time, I would have to put in a work order to the physical plant. Now, that's Steve and his folks now, okay? They'd see a work order come through from Jeremy. And it might say, you know, this needed to be done or that needed to be done. And I mean, it just got shoved in order with everybody else's. You know, is this urgent? Is this not? So if something really needed to be done, I would put, per Dr. Rankin, this needs to be done. Most of the time, he had really told me to do that. Not all the time. But if I put, per Dr. Rankin, it got done really fast. Do you know why it got done really fast? It's because the people at the physical plant knew who he was. He was the president of the university. He was my boss, but he was theirs too. And if I put per Dr. Rankin, the work orders got done because they knew who he was. If the people at the physical plant didn't know who he was, it wouldn't make a difference to them. God tells Moses, you go to Egypt. And when they say, who sent you? You tell them, I am sent you. I submit to you tonight, the only reason that was effective is because they already knew who he was. They already knew his name. And you say, well, if this is the first time the name has been revealed, how do they? no, this is not the first time the name has been revealed. This is the first time in Scripture that we find God revealing it himself, but the name was already known. You say, well, how do you know that the name was already known? Well, first of all, as we continue to read the story, they ultimately respond to the name. But if you look back, 
through the Genesis story. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 22, it says, But Abram, or later Abraham, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to Jehovah, God most high, the, the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to Jehovah. Who's Jehovah? I am who I am. The name God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 21, it says, Now Isaac pleaded with who? Jehovah for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Isaac didn't go to just anybody. It says he went to Jehovah, a God he knew personally. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 18, Jacob says, I have waited for your salvation, O Jehovah. I have waited for your salvation, O Jehovah. The patriarchs of Israel knew Jehovah. I tell you, so did the Hebrews enslaved in Egypt. God said, you use my name because it's a personal name that they know. He's a personal God, and that's important for us to know. One commentator that I was reading made this comment. People can believe in Elohim, the God who created it all, and not know Jehovah. They can believe that God exists and not know him, in a personal way. Paul says it like this in the New Testament over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. It's one thing to know about God. It's one thing to know about Jesus Christ, as Paul says to Timothy. It's a completely different thing to know him personally. As God speaks to Moses, he says, you tell them I am sent you because they already know who I am. They already know me. And that's big. That's really big as we go through life. The second thing, if we go back, look in uh, chapter 2, uh, right there at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. It says, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came upon God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. You see what's happening there? They're in a mess. They're crying out to God. Isn't that when we generally cry out to God is when we're in a mess? That's maybe the most frequent time. Now, we may pray. There's a difference between just praying and crying out. They're crying out to God in the middle of all this mess. Just based off personal experience and talking to people, I have some ideas about maybe how their cries sounded. Now, I don't know this, don't quote me on this, but I've got a feeling maybe they were saying stuff like, God, why have you abandoned us? 
we're stuck here in Egypt, slaves to the Egyptians. Didn't you make a promise to us? Why have you abandoned us? Why are you letting this happen to us? God, you used to act like you loved us. Now you've turned your back on us. And God heard their cries and he sent Moses and he told Moses, if you look there in verse 15, he says, moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. In other words, you're crying out in despair. And I just want you to know I'm the same God I've always been. They may have been crying out, God, why, why have you turned your back on us? God, why aren't you answering our prayers? God, where are you? And he says, I'm right where I've always been. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. I've never changed. He's a personal God. He's a God who never changes. In James chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, we get another picture of this. As James puts it like this, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The Father of lights, that's God, he gives power to the sun and, and to the stars and to, to all the, those celestial bodies in our solar system and universe. And, of course, we're very familiar with the sun. We like to see it, you know. Every once in a while, we like to be shaded from it. And, you know, we have some verbiage about the sun that we use. And it's even in the Bible because God allowed the writers of the Bible to write things in the way that we see things and we often say, well, what time does the sun rise? What time does the sun set? But did you know the sun really doesn't rise and the sun really doesn't set? The sun sets in the same place all day long. It never moves. We move. The earth moves around the sun and then spins while it's doing it. It's amazing how God did all that, isn't it? The sun never moves. There is no variation with the Son. There's no variation with God. The God who powers the Son is just as steady as the Son itself. So in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, he's telling Moses to remind the Hebrew people that he's still the same God he's always been. He's still the same God, and if it looks any different, it's because they move. He's still right where he's always been. He said, my name is a memorial to all generations, to the Hebrews in Egypt and to me and you today. He's still the same God sitting on the same throne in the same place he's always been. And if it looks any different, it's because we moved. He didn't. As Jehovah, he is a personal God. He's a changeless God. Our final point, he's a self-defining God. We'll go back to that original statement he made. God said to Moses, I am who I 
am. You see, God decided what his name is. God decided who he is. We live in a day where, have you heard, I'm sure you have, you've heard this little saying, they say, now you have to figure out your truth. You have to figure out your own truth. I heard a very high-ranking government official say that the other day to a crowd. You have to, now, we accept that that's your truth. No, we don't. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. That's a lie straight from hell itself. There is one truth. Right here. This is it. This is the truth. I hope it's your truth, and I hope it's my truth, but it doesn't matter if it is or not. It's still the truth. Well, there's one truth. Christians out there, I've even heard some big-time pastors along that same thing about you've got to figure out your own truth. I've heard them say, you have to decide who God is to you. No, you don't. You don't get to do that. That's not what he said. He said, I'm not whoever you decide I am. He said, I am who I am. That's who he is. Because it doesn't matter what you or I think he ought to be. He is what he is. He's a self-defining God. When we start to set parameters around who God is, that's when the wheels fall off. Or let me restate that. When Adam and Eve allowed Satan to start setting parameters around who God is, that's when the wheels fell off. If you look in Genesis chapter 2, you see this. I'm going to show it to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Who told him that? The Lord God. The personal God who is the creator. Did you get that? personal God who is the creator. And then you look in chapter 3, verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said to you, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now we'll stop there. We could go on, but we've got enough of it read that we get the point, I hope. Who told them not to eat of the tree? The Lord God. The personal God who is the creator, Yahweh Elohim. Satan said, did Elohim really tell you that? Now what did he do? Because then Eve repeated it back, said, well, here's what Elohim said. 
But that's not the way it was presented earlier. What have we done now? Satan has redefined God. Because in Genesis chapter 2, he's the Lord God, the personal creator God. And now in Genesis chapter 3, he's just God, the creator God. What's the big deal about that? When he removed the personal name Yahweh, he removed the personal relationship, and he, when he redefined God from relational to transactional, and the wheels fell off. All because Satan allowed Eve to redefine who God, or, or Satan caused Eve, tempted Eve, to redefine who God is. When we redefine who God is, we forget our place under him. While Jehovah's all we need, he may not be always what we want, but he is what he is. I've heard people say, God says, I am, and you get to fill in the blank. He's whatever you need. Now, there's, we could take some truth from that. So he is whatever we need in the moment. He's whatever we need. But here's the thing. We may not know what we need. We may, not, we may think we know what we need, but we may not know what we need. He knows what we need. You read the passage of Scripture, and you don't find that you get to fill in the blank. You know? That's not what he says. God filled in the blank. He says, I am who I am, and I'm not changing. One person that I was reading, one of the commentators said, he's always relevant because he's always current. He's never I was. He's never I'm going to be. He's never I will if I have time if something doesn't come up. He's I am. One last thing. And here's where it might hit home the most with some of us. This is where it hits home with me. Where was Moses when all this started? He was at work. Moses was preoccupied. Moses was busy. Well, like Moses, God's got a job for all of us. And sometimes we're busy when that job comes up. You know, 1 Peter 4.10, reading it from the Amplified Version, uh, I like it a lot, this uh, particular translation of this scripture talking about God having a job for all of us. Peter says, just as each one of you has received a special gift, a spiritual talent, an ability graciously given by God, employ it in serving one another as is appropriate for good stewards, of God's multifaceted grace. God's given you a gift. He's given you a talent. He's given you something to do if you're saved. Peter said, do it. Do it for others. Do it for God. And what I hear from a lot of people, I'm busy. So was Moses. You say, well, it's not so much that I'm busy. You see, it's just that I don't think I'm the right person to do that. Well, that's exactly what Moses told God. He said, who am I? Who am I to do that? 
Well, God essentially says, you're who I picked. God's picked something for each of us to do, and we need to do it. Because why? Verse 12, he told Moses, I'll certainly be with you. You see, when God calls us to do something, he doesn't call us to do it, to do it by ourselves. Just like he promised Moses, he'll stand there right beside us while we're doing what he called us to do. So is there something God's called you to do, but you hadn't surrendered to do it? Surrendering to the will of God worked out pretty good for Moses if you follow the rest of his story, right? Because he took God at his word. He believed God was exactly who he said he was. He believed that God was a personal God, a God you could know. He believed that as Jehovah, he was a never-changing God, a God who is consistent despite our circumstances. He's a God as Jehovah who is self-defining. We don't get to decide what he is. He's already done that. And as, a, as Jehovah, he's a God who's promised to do exactly what he's called us to do. So now what we have to do is go do it, whatever he's called us to do. Is there anything before we're dismissed? If not, if you'll stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Thank you for coming back to church tonight. And uh, as we are dismissed, Brother John, would you dismiss us with a word of prayer, please?